1 Samuel chapter 18. And tonight, of course, we're going to share communion together. So we're going to just take a little bit of a, a shorter look. In fact, we're only going to just look at the next four verses together in our study in 1 Samuel 18. And I think it's very fitting as a way to kind of prepare our hearts uh, towards communion. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 17, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. And as we come into this little kind of next cameo shot we get here in 1 Samuel, we see now probably one of the most beautiful examples that we have in the scripture of friendship uh, between two people who just develop a camaraderie, David and Jonathan, Saul's son, and just a picture almost in some ways, a portrayal of that very proverb, just this love they had for one another as two men, as brothers and comrades, and how they stood together in the midst of adversity, supporting and standing by one another. And of course, uh, ultimately, there are beautiful pictures to be seen in this for our own lives and our own experiences. So we're just going to sort of ruminate on what verses one to four would allow us to glean from them and then go back into worship and share communion together tonight as we enter back into worship. So look with me in verse one, first Samuel 18, we pick it up where we left off. It says, now when he, now that's a reference to David there, uh, had finished speaking to Saul The soul of Jonathan, remember that was Saul's eldest son, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now, remember, chapter 17 is this incredible story given to us in the Word of God of David's miraculous victory over Goliath, the giant Philistine who was threatening the Israelites, who was really just keeping them in a place of of fear and intimidation. And we saw David come on the scene and, and David brought something that no one else did. And that was David had a big perspective toward God. And David, through his faith as a young man, just his heart for the Lord, his passion for the Lord, uh, was zealous to see God honored and stepped into that situation uh, and realized the battle belonged to the Lord. It wasn't a battle against flesh and blood. At the end of the day, he was defying the living God. And, and David knew that God was bigger than any giant-like obstacle or resistance that can come into any of our lives. And so David stepped forward in faith. God blessed and put his hand upon David's heart for the Lord and his step out in faith. Uh, And giant Goliath fell dead. David lopped off his head, remember, and really came back with the the head of this giant, uh, must have been quite a gruesome scene, in his hand, demonstrating very clearly that he didn't just knock him down, but God had completely eradicated and defeated this enemy that was against his people. And David, when he came back, ended up getting into a dialogue with Saul because at this point, Saul was a little more inquisitive about David, what had just happened. They knew each other prior to this time, but Saul had promised tax relief, remember, to whoever would destroy this enemy of Israel, and David's now done it. So he was inquiring of David. We saw at the end of the chapter uh, whose son he was, what was this family he was now going to have to grant tax relief to and so forth. And so verse 1 of chapter 18 tells us that when they had finished speaking David and Saul they were having this dialogue David and King Saul 
probably talking a little bit about what actually it was like as he went down there and rushed forward towards Goliath and uh, no doubt as this event has just happened. So David's been speaking with Saul about his recent defeat of the giant Goliath and David where he exercised tremendous heart and love for God. Maybe he articulated again his desire to see God honored and, and Saul was perhaps maybe indicating how he was shocked at this demonstration of an incredible view of just the greatness of God and the faith that David had exercised as a young man believing God would work. And I believe, just my personal conviction, that as we're introduced now to Jonathan again in verse 1, remember Jonathan was over one-third of the army of Israel at this time as sort of one of his father's generals as the eldest son to the king. I think Jonathan probably no doubt not only observed what happened maybe between David and Goliath, this incredible triumph, but he's probably there listening as one of his father's generals to this conversation that's going on. And his heart begins to resonate with enthusiastic agreement with this young man David and just the passion and zeal that this young man showed for the Lord. And, and something within Jonathan's heart just starts to resonate, man, I, I like this kid's heart for the Lord. And at this point in time, just again, for sake of reference, there's probably about a 15 to 20 year age difference between David and Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan is probably somewhere at this time, maybe around you know, uh, 30, 35 years old. David, we believe, probably not even 20 years old yet at this point. So there is a bit of an age gap. I mean, upwards, possibly almost a 20 year difference. Uh, Jonathan, in some ways, could almost be the father of David because of the age gap. But there's something about this older man Jonathan he looks at young David and his passion for the Lord and what he's just done and and his heart just resonates and he says man I, this is great coming from a young guy this desire to honor God and his faith and his zeal for the Lord and remember as we saw not too long ago Jonathan displayed a similar heart attitude and spirit of real zeal and wanting to honor the Lord himself back in 1 Samuel chapter 14. If you remember there, it was in 1 Samuel 14. Let me just read to you one verse from there that Jonathan said to his armor bearer these words. It says, Jonathan said to his young man who bore his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of the uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. So Jonathan had a very similar spirit, if you would, like David's as an individual who loved God, who wanted to see God honored. Jonathan was a man who, who really had a zeal for the Lord. He kind of had this similar temperament of David willing to venture out in faith. We saw in chapter 14 where he said, man, he says to his armor bearer, look, I mean, yeah, that's a whole garrison of Philistines up there, but maybe God wants to work and God doesn't need 200 soldiers. He could do the same with, with just the two of us. What do you say we go over there? And step out and see if God wants to work and see if God wants to do something. Nothing forbids God uh, from delivering by many soldiers or just by a few people. Nothing hinders or limits God. And, and remember, Jonathan and his armor bearer went forward and, and God granted a great victory. And Jonathan attacked the Philistines, conquered them, and a battle began to turn in the direction of Israel again, and others followed his step of faith. And, and so Jonathan finds, I believe, in young David, what we might say here, uh, we, could, we would probably refer to as like a kindred spirit. 
because he has a similar heart to David, there's sort of this kindred spirit, a like-minded person spiritually with results we now see in chapter 18 beginning and going forward in 1 Samuel in this deep friendship and this bond that develops between Jonathan and David. Because they have this like-mindedness, there's this sort of spiritual camaraderie that they find among one another and this close bond as brothers starts to form. They kind of become like comrades uh, in the Lord's army here. And it was like their two souls, it says verse one here, were knit together in their zeal for God and desire to honor him. They shared the same heart and spirit for the Lord and they developed a deep love for one another as brothers. And this really close, intimate friendship develops between these two men. And I think it's a very beautiful example of close friendships that can develop with God at the center of two lives. I mean, don't get me wrong. Friendships can be a wonderful thing. Certainly, we perhaps have friends in the world that aren't Christians, and maybe we had some really deep friendships before we were following the Lord. But there's something really wonderful that can come when two people have a similar spirit and a similar heart that's centered upon God and wanting to love God and live for God and this kindred spirit beyond the human spirit can really begin to gel together between two people, two men or two women, whatever. And, and there's just this deep friendship bond that begins to form. And, the, and two hearts can just be so knit together because they share just this close, deep bond spiritually. And, and two people can beginning to love the Lord. They love each other tremendously. And there's this real camaraderie this spiritual camaraderie that just forms between two individuals. And, and I think David and Jonathan are this great exemplary uh, demonstration of this. And how beautiful, again, here are two men with this close bond, David and Jonathan. Uh, and, and I think certainly a lot of times friendships and relationships tend to many times come a lot easier for women. Women are much more gifted relationally than men and more naturally tend to form, form bonds. But there's something very beautiful here to see these two men. And keep in mind, uh, th these weren't men who, unfortunately, were in some ways, you know, uh, you know, you say, well, they're just they're not very masculine. They were over-emotional. Th these men were warriors. These were military warriors. They were lopping people's heads off with swords. They were the Rambos of the Old Testament. I mean, these were, these were masculine men and yet they loved one another there was a camaraderie among them there was a brotherhood there was this this kinship that they shared and here's what's interesting too these are two men if you take notice of this friendship that shows up in the scripture that come from completely different worlds totally different worlds and yet they're united in friendship who was jonathan jonathan was a child of a king which means he was raised in the lifestyle of being a king's kid. And he was the oldest son in his family, we know, and he was heir to a throne. What was David? David was the son of a farmer. He was a shepherd boy. That was about the most blue-collar form of employment that existed in the ancient world. Shepherds were always despised and looked down upon as, you know, kind of crooked and, and, and lowly individuals. And, and so here you have David at the total opposite end of the spectrum as far as status and socioeconomic things and lifestyles. And what's David? He's not the oldest firstborn personality. David's the youngest of eight siblings. 
So here you have two men from completely different worlds, but yet they're able to find this commonality and this kinship. And despite the lifestyle differences, we find here their hearts become connected. There's this close bond and they share this wonderful friendship because the Lord's present in their lives. And I think it's a really great reminder to all of us. And let me say this. Don't let differences in status and background and past and, and, and where somebody else might be. Don't let those things prohibit or keep you from connecting with people that God may want to connect you with. Because God may want to connect somebody who's perhaps you know, super wealthy with someone who's super poor and allow them to have this incredible bond of friendship where they can support one another and help each other see things from different perspectives. And, 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 and we don't always need you know, to, to flock together with those who are just like us. God may at times divinely want to appoint, you know, appoint friendships and relationships where people can set aside those things. I don't care what your status is or my status is or what your background is or what your background... Look, we, we have this in common. It's much deeper. It's the Lord. It's the things of the Lord. And David and Jonathan come from two different worlds and they form this bond. And the beautiful thing throughout Scripture, we see they're always mutually helping one another, supporting each other, edifying each other, enjoying a relationship where they assist and they support and keep each other accountable and stand by one another. And just this beautiful, beautiful example of the bonds that can come as the result of the Lord being in people's lives when we can set aside those worldly things and put the focus upon what's deeper and more meaningful in life. Well, verse 2 says, Saul on that day also, after him slaying Goliath, then took David, notice, and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. So up to this point, we've seen, it seems David has gone back and forth between sort of the palace where he would minister to and serve Saul. Remember, David was a very proficient and skilled musician. And because Saul was being distressed, by this spirit that was troubling him as the result of his rebellion against God and because God had pulled the spiritual anointing off of Saul's life and a distressing spirit had come, they had recommended, look, let us get a musician for you to play some music that hopefully can be therapeutic and soothe your soul. And of course, the person they found was David to do that. Of course, God was already beginning to expose David to the experience of what it's like to be a king, preparing him in this season of preparation before he would assume the throne as the next king of Israel. So David, it seems for a time, was kind of going back and forth between tending to the flocks back at home there in Bethlehem and then going over and spending time with Saul there on occasion. But once David destroyed Goliath, David at that point became all the more impressive and valuable. So King Saul now determines and chooses that David is going to be a part of the king's full-time staff and that he's coming over there to where the palace was, if you would, and no more is he going to be going back home to his father's house. So David is now drawn away, listen, from his past life and he is now brought into a new life of serving the king and serving the king's purposes. Look at verse 3. It goes on to tell us more about David and Jonathan's relationship. It says, And Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. So because of the close bond of friendship, Jonathan and David now we see make a covenant, or we might say a contract, or, or a better term might be maybe a commitment to one another as friends. 
So they now establish this covenant. We might say it's sort of a vow of loyalty they make to one another, a, a way of offering dedication to one another. What one commentator said this. He says, such covenants of brotherhood were frequent in the East. They are ratified by certain ceremonies and in the presence of witnesses that the persons covenanting, covenanting will be sworn brothers for life. So this wasn't an unusual thing here. These two had become close friends, comrades. So now they decide to actually make this covenant, this vow of dedication and loyalty. And it's believed, some from the Hebrew language and very likely just from what we know culturally of ancient Israel in that time. We see this all the way back in the time of Abraham when God made a covenant with Abraham. It's believed when it says here that, that Jonathan and David made a covenant that what it's describing is how the ancient people in a practice would do what was called cutting covenant. Cutting covenant. And what that described was a ceremony when two people wanted to make a commitment to one another, a, a covenant or a contract and demonstrate that they were very serious and going to be loyal and faithful to it, what they would actually do to cut covenant was two people, when they entered into a covenantal agreement, they would actually, to show their seriousness of being loyal to that commitment, they would actually take an animal, they would slay the animal, they would then split its body in two or split it in half, laying half of the carcass here and half of the carcass here with the bloody trail in the middle, and then they would typically hold hands and walk through the middle of the two halves of that bloody animal. And the purpose of that, no pun intended, was basically to say we are deadly serious about this covenant we're entering into. We, we are extremely sincere and so sincere we are willing, the idea was kind of symbolically, we are willing to shed blood to remain faithful to this commitment. We're willing to do whatever is necessary and they were willing to actually, again, walk through in the presence of witnesses to demonstrate the seriousness of doing this. So they were swearing to brotherhood for life. They were vowing comradeship with one another and demonstrating commitment to stand by and support each other. And again, I look at this and I think to myself, man, what a beautiful example of commitment between two men and the value of that. And not to say that there's not value in that, certainly in any level of friendship. I think women need the same camaraderie and, and need accountability and support. But, but there's something really valuable and precious when men recognize the need of having someone else like this in their life. Having a Jonathan in their life, having a David in their life and recognizing the value of this and this, this bond that, that can be shared together, this wonderful kind of friendship relationships. I hope... I hope that you have someone or a few like this in your life. Someone who you just, you share a bond with like that, just a kinship of, of brotherhood. And, and oftentimes that camaraderie, I'll tell you something from what I've witnessed myself. Oftentimes one of the greatest demonstrations of what I would call camaraderie and that kind of brotherhood and kinship, I see that most frequently, I think most deeply portrayed in arenas like in the military. And in law enforcement, which I had six years of opportunity to be involved with a, 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 a local city police department and attending funerals of law enforcement officers and, and, and just you know seeing the reality of... And, and listen, th these were people who, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying they were always chum chum, but, but when the rubber met the road, 
There was a depth of camaraderie that was there because these type of people, whether it's in the military and in a combat zone or in law enforcement, they understand the concept of no matter what, I will always have your back because that's what we do. I will, and, and there were times where personality-wise, you knew certain people, they didn't even like each other. But there was just this, this understanding of the value of commitment and devotion and camaraderie and standing by one another and just this beautiful thing that existed because they had to learn how to survive in their arenas. And listen, I look at that and I think to myself, man, there ought to be more of that attitude and heart of camaraderie and loyalty and covenanting and committing to one another in the family of God. Because we're in a combat zone too, if you haven't noticed. It's called spiritual warfare. And they can get pretty rough and pretty dangerous and pretty hard to survive. And to have someone like that who is, is someone who you know, they will have my back. They'll stand with me. They'll support me. They'll pray with me in my hardest hour. They'll be there with me when everybody else, you know, is pushing me aside. They'll, they'll stand back to back with me. And to have that kind of relationship and friendship is just an invaluable thing. And would to God that more of us would say, Lord, what exists there between Jonathan and David? Lord, give us more of that in the body of Christ. Between brothers in the Lord and sisters in the Lord, that kind of kinship and fellowship is just invaluable. And it became such a, a wonderful asset to both of these men's lives as they went forward. We see references to it and that we might be able to experience the same in a spiritual kinship that these men were experiencing as well. Verse 4 also tells us this, look at it. And Jonathan, again, remember the son of Saul the king, he's the, the, the heir to the throne, because no one knows David's anointed at this time, in a sense the crown prince. Jonathan took off the robe that was on him, and that's a reference clearly to sort of a the royal robe, the princely robe. He had a tunic underneath. But he takes off the robe and he gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, the scripture is silent. We don't know at this point how much Jonathan is aware of that David's been anointed as the next king of Israel. If they developed a close bond and friendship, I have to tend to lean towards that perhaps Jonathan is somewhat aware <laughs> who David is and, and, and what happened between Samuel when he came and anointed David, remember, and no doubt whispered in his ear, you know, the, the Lord's anointed you, the next king of Israel. And, and so I believe there's somewhat of an awareness, but Jonathan now, again, is another demonstration of this friendship, this close bond that these brothers have. Jonathan displays in verse four here, look at it, incredible humility and sacrifice of himself. Please take notice there in verse four, it says, Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David. In a sense, what you have pictured there symbolically, symbolically, in a sense, Jonathan is dethroning himself as the heir to the throne, Saul's eldest son. He's dethroning himself, wanting what's best for David and what would help David. And you would think, if anything, if Jonathan in his humanity let his flesh rule inside, he should be incredibly jealous of David. He should be concerned about being competitive with David. What, 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 what's this guy doing here? He's seeming to get a lot of press here. I'm supposed to be the next king in Israel. And if anything, if he was acting in his humanity, he would be threatened by David and, and concerned. But instead, we see him standing behind David and he's acknowledging, I believe, there in verse 4, he's acknowledging in faith 
that he sees and he senses the call of God upon David's life. And he just recognizes that the hand of God is upon David and he sees that and therefore is a good friend. All he wants to do is get behind it. And he wants to get behind the good thing that God wants to do in David's life. Even to the point of willing to step out of the way and dethrone himself. Basically, Jonathan is testifying with his actions. God has chosen you, David, and he plans to work through your life. And I acknowledge it and I'll be the first to acknowledge it as your friend. And I support it. And anything I can do to get behind you as my comrade and my brother. And what an incredible heart Jonathan shows that he has for God. That he is more interested in God's will rather than his own will. He's willing to deny himself, we see here, sacrifice himself, surrender to God's purposes. And he wants what's best for David because he loves David. And that's what a true friend does. He's not concerned about what's best for him. He wants what's best for David. And what a wonderful heart, let me just say, to be willing to be that kind of person in a relationship. To be willing to sacrifice your own will, to deny yourself, and to be willing to empower, to equip, to enable maybe someone else so that they can succeed. And to be willing to get behind someone with that kind of a humble heart to get behind what God's doing in someone else's life. You know, we always want to get involved with what God's doing in our life, but what about saying, look, I don't have to be, but what's God doing in somebody else's life? And how can I get behind what God's doing in someone else's life? And here Jonathan displays this using even his position, his power, again, his resources. He's giving gifts to David, doing everything he can, saying, I can see God's hand is upon your life, David, and I want to support that in every way that I can here as he goes through this very beautiful act with David as his friend. Now, let me just say a couple things in regards to verses 1 to 4, one of which I wish I didn't even have to say, but given the day and age that we live in and the aggressive agenda that does exist, uh, let me just say verses 1 through 4 here of 1 Samuel chapter 18, contrary to how some have sought to use this passage as a proof text for their agenda, looking at the close relationship between David and, and, and Jonathan and how it says here twice that they loved one another and their souls were knit together. Listen to me. This has nothing to do with homosexual love between these two men. It has nothing to do with homosexual practice between these two men. Some even try, well, look, it says none of they loved each other, but that Jonathan took off his robe and he gave David his armor too, right? Well, if you're going to use that as a proof text in the prior chapter, remember, Saul offered his armor too. So that's just a, a ridiculous stretch to try and act somehow that there was something provocative happening here because he took off his robe and ga gave his armor. Well, Saul just gave his armor to David in the last chapter. Nobody makes that a, a, an agenda for somehow something. It is a total perversion and twisting of the text here in Scripture uh, to read into this or this relationship that existed between David and Jonathan, this close love between these two men, as if somehow there was something going on of a homosexual affection or interaction between the two men. And sadly, there are those who want to justify what the Bible clearly forbids contextually in its teaching from Genesis to Revelation and using this as, there you go, there's an indication in the Bible as a proof text 
that there was a homosexual relationship. That is a huge stretch and completely something that does not fit with the passage. In fact, let me just say this as well. One other thing before I move on from that. The word that's used here two times in verse 1 through 4 that says that Jonathan loved David as his own soul, that Hebrew word for love there that's used is never used to describe in the Hebrew homosexual practice. In fact, the same Hebrew word that's used, Jonathan loved David, that same Hebrew word love is the same one that's used down in verse 16 in the chapter. Look at it, where it says, all Israel and all Judah loved David. Same exact word. Same exact word. If that's not proof text enough right there. The word that's used is referring to a love of, of devotion, a, a love of, of camaraderie. It has nothing to do with anything homosexual in its indication. Now, what I do want you to see, and I think this is very beautiful, is this beautiful, loving friendship that's shared between these two men, and this is why it's sad that it's distorted in a perverted way, this beautiful, loving friendship is a divine illustration. A divine illustration of a loving friendship relation that the Lord Jesus wants with us. It's a beautiful picture in the Old Testament. Think this through with me. Who was Jonathan? He was the son of the king. He was the heir of a throne. Who was David? Or who is the Lord Jesus? The Lord Jesus is the son of what? The king of kings. Just like Jonathan was the son of a king and an heir to a throne, Jesus is the son of the greatest king, the king of kings and the heir of heaven. So in Jonathan's heart and actions that we see here in these first four verses, I want to draw your attention before we close to the beautiful imagery of the Lord Jesus and how Jesus being much greater than us, just like Jonathan was much greater in his status than David, how the Lord Jesus desires a close, loving friendship with us, an intimate relationship with you and me, that we would enter into this experience with Jesus that's intimate and is a close bond and relationship. Remember Jesus said in John 15, he said, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Jesus, the king, wants us to have a friendship relationship with him. Consider the pictures, if you would, briefly with me, seen in our text here, how Jonathan, the king's son, reflects Jesus, the son of God, the king of kings. First of all, we're told two times that Jonathan, it says, had a tremendous love in his heart for David. It says two times that Jonathan loved David. David, Jonathan seems to be the initiator and the one who was longing for a close relationship with David. And in the same way, Jesus, the son of God, the son of the king of kings, has a tremendous love in his heart for each one of us. And he's the one that's the initiator. He's the one who loves us before we ever loved him. And he's the one, though way greater than us. Think of it. I mean, are we in the same status as Jesus? Are we in the same? We're so far separated. You think there was a big difference between Jonathan as the, the, the son of a king and David, a farm boy. Jesus is so much greater than us and yet he loves us with a great love. And he wants to have a relationship with us. He wants to have a friendship with you and I. And it says in verse 3 as well that Jonathan offered to make a covenant with David, a commitment. And that covenant, as I said, is likely to have involved the shedding of blood of an innocent sacrifice. 
And this is a beautiful picture, I think, because that covenant was a covenant based upon blood and the dedication of coming together in closer relationship. And what does Jesus offer us? A covenant. Jesus says, even in regards to communion, this is a new covenant in my blood. A new covenant, not based upon the Old Testament covenant of sacrificial animals, but the sacrifice of himself. And he said, this is a new covenant in my blood shed for the remission of sins. Jesus offers to us a covenant. And it's much better than a temporary covenant. It's an eternal covenant. It's an eternal covenant based upon his blood. And he offers to make that covenant with us. And you and I, like David, need to decide whether or not we're going to reciprocate love back to Jesus and whether we're going to enter into a covenant with Jesus. David showed a response toward Jonathan and we need to show a response to love Jesus in return for his love for us. And David, it seems, entered into this covenant with Jonathan and we as well, though the covenant is offered to us, we have a choice. We need to willingly enter into the covenant that Jesus offers us and enter into this deep, abiding, close friendship with Jesus and this eternal covenant where we will forever forever and ever become a child of the king just like Jonathan was a child of the king and, and we will eternally be an heir to the throne I think it's beautiful to see as well in verse 4 there looking at Jonathan how what did Jonathan do he humbled himself and he dethroned himself didn't he from his royal position to connect with and help David it says there in verse 4 Jonathan took off his robe we talked about that that was on him and he gave it to David so again, here's the, the son of the king and he's dethroning himself. He's humbling himself from his royal position on the throne and coming down to connect with and help out David. And did Jesus not do the exact same thing? Did Jesus, the, the, the son of God, not humble himself and leave his throne and come to earth? Why? Because he wanted to connect with you and I. This is what Philippians 2 teaches us all about. It says there in Philippians 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But what did he do? It says Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of of the cross and in so doing what does Jonathan do it says verse 4 there in the text he took off the robe that was on him and he gave it to David and by taking off the robe that was on him and giving this robe to David Jonathan takes off his robe gives it to David and in so doing what does he do he gives David a new identity he's not the shepherd boy anymore now he's got a new identity now he's the heir to the throne and when he receives this robe from Jonathan, his identity, in a sense, is changed. And the wonderful thing is this. When we enter into a relationship with Jesus, guess what Jesus does? He robes us, the Bible says, with his righteousness. And by him robing us with his righteousness, our identity is changed. No longer is our spiritual poverty and sinfulness our identity or our past standing and mistakes and failures our identity. No longer does that identity exist. We have a new identity. Our new identity is we're now righteous in Christ. I love what it says in the book of Isaiah. Let me read to you. It's a beautiful prophetic description of this. Isaiah 62.10 or 61.10, excuse me, says this. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord 
My soul shall be joyful in my God. Here's why. Listen. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. How awesome to know that tonight, no matter what stain and failures in your past, no how grievous your level of sin is from your perspective or someone else's perspective, or how guilty you feel about your past or what you've done or all your mistakes, listen, the reality is from God's perspective, he sees none of that because you have been robed in the righteousness of Jesus. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that Jesus, he who knew no sin, became sin for us that we might become, the listen, the righteousness of God in him. And so because your faith and trust is in Jesus Christ, your position before God, your identity before God is not sinful. So God doesn't look upon you as sinful. God looks upon you as righteous, holy, clean, pure. And so as you come to him and have access by grace through faith, it's because you can come to him and you're coming in the righteousness of Jesus. And you have the same acceptance as the Lord Jesus himself to the very throne of God because you've been robed because Jesus said, oh, yeah, you, your garments are defiled. But here, you don't have to be in spiritual poverty and sinfulness anymore. Let me robe you in my righteousness. And that's ours by our faith and our relationship with Jesus. It's the gift that's been given to us. And notice finally before we close, what did Jonathan also do in verse 4? He supplied David with gifts and armor to bless him, to help him and enable and equip him to fulfill his calling. It says there in verse 4, after he gave him his robe, he also gave him armor even to his sword and his bow and his belt. So Jonathan equips David with what he needs to be able to fulfill his calling by giving to him armor, giving to him gifts. And again, can I say, when we enter into a relationship with Jesus, ladies and gentlemen, he does the same for us spiritually. Jesus gives us gifts to fulfill our calling. He gives us spiritual gifts to enable us and to equip us to fulfill what God wants for us to do as we serve him. And Jesus gives to us spiritual armor to be victorious against the attacks of the enemy and spiritual warfare and opposition. And have you noticed that happens sometimes? You know, maybe this past week you've been very clearly aware of the hours of the evil one being launched against you and the attacks and the assault. The wonderful thing is the Bible says in Ephesians 6 that there's the armor of God. This is the wonderful thing. Listen, it's not just armor. It's the armor of God. It's God's armor given to us by Jesus that we have been supplied so that we can resist the enemy and stand in the evil day. And when spiritual warfare comes, we can know that we are righteous in the sight of the Lord because we're robed in his righteousness. And we have the gifts and the armor and everything we need. Listen, everything you need for life and godliness has been supplied to you. It's been supplied to you by Jesus. I don't care what you feel like, you lack nothing spiritually. Nothing. Everything is at your disposal. Everything that King Jesus has has been given to you. What an incredible thing to consider that King Jesus, the Lord of all, loves you. He's drawn you into this close relationship, wants to have an intimate relationship with you despite who you are. That should give encouragement to your soul. 
that there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother, and that friend, Proverbs 17, he loves at all times. And he'll be with you in adversity when no one else is, because he's a very faithful friend, the friend of sinners. Shall we pray together? Father, thank you.